when you are just starting dropshipping, you should involve yourself as much and as deeply as possible with product research. Don't just lean on one particular method, lean on maybe five to 10 different methods, and then essentially just, you know, just start testing a lot. You know, in order for a beginner to have that tailored eye, it's really just about experience. You know, you can't really shortcut this process. Establish that eye, and once you've established that you're, you're good, you're effective at product research, then you can start delegating it to other people. You're listening to Ecomonics, a Debutify podcast, your resource for one-of-a-kind insights into the world of e-commerce and business in the modern age. This is Joseph. I'll be presenting a wealth of industry knowledge from interviews with successful business people and our own state-of-the-art research. Your time is valuable, so let's go. When I met with today's guest, Paul Lee, It was lucky for me that I had made some progress on my own store and I was able to pick his brain about what to do next and how to do it. A key takeaway I'll just share with you off the bat is grouping tasks together by type, such as doing all your testing in one go, keeping your gears from shifting more than they have to. Another masterclass in dropshipping and e-commerce for the books. Come on in. Paul Lee, it is good to have you here on Ecomonics. How are you doing today? How are you feeling? I'm doing good. I'm just uh, feeling bumped up. I got a lot of work done today and um yeah i'm excited yeah same here it's uh it, it feels good to be a part of this industry because for a long time i would write everything down that i got to do in a day and since joining the e-commerce world i my pages they, they fill up it's uh, it, it's a fascinating just how much forward momentum there is and how innovative it is so i feel you on that first question is it's a tradition um well self-imposed tradition i made this the tradition really and it's not just my show other shows you know the drill Tell us who you are and what you do. All right. Uh, my name is Paul Lee. I'm 24 years old and I live in New York City. I am a seven-figure Shopify dropshipper. I've been doing this since 2016. And I currently uh, mentor some people on the side at ecomex.org. Um, and I also am pursuing a fashion brand right now. So those are all the things I'm currently up to. Okay, right on. So I want to start with something that hadn't crossed my mind, even I think like 50 recordings in. It's something that you talked about on the Oberlo channel because you have a relationship with them that we can get into. Um, and it's regarding winning products. Uh, you were saying how a winning product can be popular for a time uh, and then it phases out before it's brought back. Um, there's a cycle to these things. I didn't realize this. I had thought that once a product has had its time, then that's basically it. And there's no bringing it back because all the people who bought it have just bought it. So, and there may be some truth to that, but in your experience, can you tell us about some products that you've seen become re-winners and if possible, maybe even ones that uh, went out before, one before, but then on retry, they didn't work out so well? Yeah, I can give you two examples. So one particular example that I see year and year again is called the Magic Mop. It's a sort of mop where you, where it comes with a bucket and then you can rewash it. And then uh, it's just basically a very uh, useful mop. And I see every single year, maybe around August, sometimes in the summer, sometimes uh, it it varies, but I see the ad posted again and it's millions and millions of views for duration of about a month. It dies off. Next year I see it again. And it's just this particular pattern that a lot of re-winners or a lot of winners are reintroduced. Um, Another example would be like seasonal products, like for example, Halloween products. Um, let's just say the LED uh, purge mask. That product becomes trendy every single October. So that's just like the perfect ideal example of a, of a product that could be um, reintroduced. Yeah. And uh, just uh, I actually want to ask you about the mop briefly. So how, did, how exactly does it come across your radar? Is it just you're on Facebook and you see the ad and you remember it because you pay attention to the industry? Yeah. When you've been doing this for a long time, you, you see products over and over again. Uh, a lot of these products are not 
fresh new winners. A lot of them are just recycled. Uh, I, I say a large majority of them actually are recycled. Um, and then also, whenever I'm doing particularly, whenever I'm particularly interested in a product, I like to search it on Facebook, uh, video search. And then a lot of times you'll see these videos that'll be posted years ago. And then some, some in 2017, mm-hmm. some in 2018, some in 2019. So that's, that's just clear evidence that this product is uh, timeless, essentially, uh, always reintroduced year after year. So let's keep this line of questioning regarding the winning products. Um, this is from your interview on Tech Money Talks. You mentioned early on, uh, you know, when you had gotten into e-commerce, uh, you found a winning product you were able to scale. So optionally, I would like to know what that product was. But the purpose of this question is at that level of experience you had had, how were you able to tell it was a winner? Is it the same criteria that you would use today? Uh, it, I think my criteria is a little bit more fleshed out right now. Um, mm-hmm. But before when I saw the product, the, the criteria was the wow factor. Uh, it was essentially a beard comb. And when you think of your average beard comb, it's something like a plastic $2 comb. Uh, mm-hmm. But this beard comb was actually wooden. It was made out of sandalwood, had a very nice scent to it. It was like a switchblade style. It, it was just very something you, you normally wouldn't ever see and normally wouldn't ever expect. Um, so the reason why I think it was a winning product was because of the wow factor and also mm-hmm. my marketing of behind it. I didn't just market it as something that grooms your facial hair. I, I marketed it as something that gives you an experience every single time you groom your hair in the morning. It gives you that scent of sandalwood, that fresh, smoky uh, scent, of, of very masculine scent of sandalwood. Um, and I think those two <laughs> factors uh, made it a winning product. Yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I have a long-standing relationship with my beard as well. so. I might yeah. have uh, closed my eyes and went to a different place very briefly there as you're describing that. Yeah, it's, it's like the uh, way you describe the, the product. It gives you the whole, um, it, it's, it's experience, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, when you saw that comb, did it, did it wow you or was it more like you thought of how I could turn this into the wow factor? It honestly did wow, wow me as in the, the gray, I think it's called the gradient of the wood, the wood gradient or something like that. Uh, it was just very, very beautiful, to be honest. Um, and it's something I've never seen before and it did give me that wall factor. All right. So I got one more winning product related question. And by the way, for our, for our listeners, you might've noticed that I jumped right into this because, um, just from what I studied from, uh, from Paul, he's, he's very analytical and he, uh, he understands how this works. And I'm not the first person to say this too. The people, uh, the good people on Oberlo also noticed that you had, uh, the analytical sense. You understood the numbers very well. And where I am currently in my own e-commerce journey is that I, I have my first e-commerce store. Uh, I've got my first product that I'm testing. It might go well, it might not. More right now, the important thing for me is to just kind of like see how this all works. And if it takes off, great. If not, don't worry about that. But that's why I really want to get into the winning product stuff um, right off the bat. So I got one more question along these lines. And this one is more speculative. How much sway, actually, you know, in a way you did answer this based on the comb, but let's ask it in anyways, just in case you have, uh, you have other examples you can bring up throughout your experience. But how much sway do you feel you have on what becomes a winner? And how much of it do you feel is inherent to the product itself? I'd say those are hand in hand. So the product itself mm-hmm. has certain attributes, has certain characteristics that can signify um, that it, it could potentially be a winner. So for example, if a product was very sleek or if it had these fancy features or if it was if it was a product that had many more functions than its um, predecessors, um, something that's particularly special about that product, something that's very hard to find in stores, um, its features are extremely useful or it's just 
something where if you were to imagine walking by it at a store, you just can't help but notice it. You, you might not buy it, but you just can't help but notice mm-hmm. it. It's something that just gravitates attention. Um, so there, there are a lot of factors um, for those products. And the more factors that the, or I call it the criteria of winning products, the more criteria of winning product a product has, the more likely it is to be a winner. Now, you talk a lot about um, your, your testing phase, uh, which we'll, we'll, we'll touch on more uh, as we go. Um, but you talk about testing and moving on. And I've talked to other drop shippers and other people in this space as well. And so far, no one has said, you know, to, to, to over-test something or even if the test doesn't work, to keep going with it. But this is also something key to what you talk about too. Uh, staying on top of current trends before saturation hits too rapidly. So there is a window of time we have to act, especially in seasonal products too, like you were saying with Halloween products, is that the window of time is very small. But I would also say too that there's, we, we know enough culturally to know that, okay, well, this is Halloween time. This is the purge mass. There's good chances this is going to sell. I believe there are a number of efforts a seller needs to take to handle this testing without, A, losing too much money or, you know, um, harming their own well-being, like if people get, you know, overattached. I'm, I'm, I want you to talk about your systemization workflow because I think this would be the best way to help our uh, our listeners understand this uh, more clearly. Um, you brought it up in your YouTube video about common mistakes. So, yeah, can you get into your uh, systemization workflow for us? Yeah, so I'll, I think this is more uh, applicable for most of the audience. I'll talk about how sure. I started and when I was essentially a one-man team. Um, so essentially, I would try to batch my my responsibilities as much as possible. So for example, the very hard work would be, uh, a lot of times it'd be Facebook ads. So I would do Facebook ads in the morning. Um, actually, let me rewind. Let me just start from the entire step-by-step process. This first step would be uh, product research. So instead of doing product research for like an hour, you should strive to do product research for three to five hours, just straight. That way you can go super, super deep and very thorough when you're going into product research, uh, as opposed to just you know, scratching the surface of a couple pages on AliExpress or just not really digging that deep. Um, so I would batch mm-hmm. that task. So that's the first task. It would be the product research task. And then let's say I did find maybe five products I, I really want to test. Then the process would be to find those products and source them on AliExpress, import them, and go ahead and create the uh, copywriting and the product images and, and everything like that. Um, so that's another task. That, would, that might take maybe five hours as well. Um, and mind you, this might not be all in one day. It might it might be over this time span of a couple of days. Um, mm-hmm. But after the product pages are done, then it would be the ad creatives. So I would either I almost always outsource my ad creatives, uh, and um, uh, so there would be that process. And then after that, it would be the Facebook ads process. So everything is very categorical. Everything is very batched. Instead of me trying to do product research find one product, create one product page, do one ad creative, and then launch on Facebook ads. I think that it's not as efficient as opposed to just Mm -hmm. batching all these tasks. Um, Because once you're doing a task, it's a lot easier for your brain to just keep doing it as opposed to switching. uh, Because there's always like a a fatigue behind switching tasks and switching uh, decisions. Um, So that's what I would advise. Mm -hmm. Okay. I I want to say that back to you because I want to make sure that I'm understanding this. Because what I'm getting is in our minds, we have different gears. And so if I were to be constantly shifting gears between uh, researching a product, opening the store, getting the creatives, and then doing the Facebook ad test, and then going back into research versus having more momentum within the research phase, because I'm, I'm more immersed in that. And, uh, and there's more of, a, of an inertia to going through all of these. I, have, I will say this is the first um, uh, time that I uh, really had a chance to understand this. So 
If it's all right with you, I would like to just touch on a couple of things from that process before we move on. Sure. So within the the research part of this, right now where I'm standing with research is I'll tell you what I'm doing, and then I would like to hear you know what what you do because I'm sure you're doing it a uh, 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 hundred times better than I'm doing it at the moment, which is the way it should be. So far, like the one product that I've researched, I've first thing I would do is I'm I'm just on Instagram and I'm just on Facebook mining bail business and I'm just trying to keep my eyes peeled on products that I think. I have some potential, which is probably the first problem because, well, once I see a product on Facebook, that means somebody else is already advertising it. So I might already be late to the party. And then I hop onto AliExpress and I'm looking at the reviews and I'm trying to get a sense of, you know, is this a quality product? And so can I find a different angle that I can market at? Um, so that's all I got. But for you, how are you doing this research and how is it so effective? And, you know, what? If you, even so far as like what other websites you're going on to, what other software you're using? Yeah, so I'd say um, when you are just starting dropshipping, you should involve yourself as much and as deeply as possible with product research. Um, you should strive to uh, diversify your product research methods as well. So don't just lean on one particular method. Lean on maybe five to ten different methods, and then essentially just you know just start testing a lot. You know, in order for a beginner to have that tailored eye. It's really just about experience. You know, you can't really shortcut this process. Of course, you can educate yourself like on the criterias of like what previous winning products look like um, and, and do kind of that to um, have a better ratio of, you know, winning products uh, from all the products you've tested. Um, but then once you've established that I and once you've established that you're, you're good, you're effective at product research, then you can start delegating it to other people. Because once you learn how to do product research, you can start to train um, VAs to do that for you. So right now I have about three product researchers. They spend about 20 hours a week uh, on using various different methods. And uh, for me, what I have to do is they send me all of their findings on an Excel sheet. And then what I do is I, I rate them from high, medium to low. So all like maybe 80% of their findings, even though they're good at what they do, 80% of their findings, I immediately reject. I say it's low confidence. Uh, maybe about 10%, I, maybe even like 15%, I'd say um, it's it's medium confidence and then 5% are actually high confidence and then we go in and test those. So that's kind of the system um, behind my current product research uh, methodology or my system, I guess. Um, but, but yeah, I hope that, uh, did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it does. And, you know, I don't, I wouldn't look to any one person that I talk to to be able to, you know, answer everything. For me, the journey that I'm on is about piecing these uh, these answers together as I go. So uh, you're, I, I will say even so far, we're like 14 minutes in and you've uh, already been quite quite a help. The other thing that I wanted to hone on to is, is the testing. So this is where I'm a bit uh, unsure about how far I can go with any one individual store. So what I think happens is... Um, you pick a product and then you have to open up a, a store uh, for that product. Now, is that usually what you do or do you have stores that are ready to go based on different niches so that you can um, churn products through those rather than have to start a new one each time? Yeah. So it sounds kind of like you're having a one product store. It, it sounds like that's the kind of route that you're taking. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I just figured I would start simple. just, you know, one product, one store, see what I can do with it. I'll actually challenge you with that. I don't think it's, sure. I think it's actually much more difficult. Uh, it's less simple to be honest, in my opinion. Um, what I advise my students particularly is a general store or an industry store. So a general store is, you know, what it sounds like. It's just a general store that sells anything and everything. As long as you design it in such a way, and as long as you have a, um, a very high converting 
very well designed, very good copywriting uh, for the product page, then it will convert just as well as a niche store, even a one product store. Um, and I think it's a total misconception that if your domain name is your product name, it's going to boost up conversions, everything like that. Um, I, I don't think it's necessary. And let's just say if you were to find 10 products you want to test, you would have to create 10 different stores. And, and that's quite a lot of work as opposed to just right. creating one store. Um, but more, some people like to you know, have a more catered store. They want to cater towards a specific audience. So instead of going with a niche store, I like to go with an industry store. So how you can differentiate those is, is you could think of it like this, like fishing is a niche, whereas outdoors is an industry because outdoors can sell fishing, camping, hunting, um, you know, and anything, kayaking, everything. But it, it's very general, but it's still somewhat catered. So those are my recommendations, a general store and a uh, industry store. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, so one thing I do want to say in response to that, and I appreciate you challenging me on it, is that initially I had um, the, the store that I had in mind was a, a home office store, uh, which I would say is a niche, but I, I think in order for that to be an industry in the same equivalency of uh, fishing versus outdoor, I guess would be business in general, which even that, I don't know, it seems. Or, or even a home store. Right. Yeah. Um, and so what ended up happening was I, w I had cataloged a bunch of products and then I realized talking to, uh, uh, uh to, to my boss man, Ricky as well is you know, a lot of these are products that people are going to, they see in Staples, they see in Amazon. So there wasn't anything that we can really like do to, to, to push them forward. And so we settled on the one product that I'm talking about. And I don't mind sharing it too, by the way, it's uh, these self-stick drawers that you would put underneath the table or a desk or something. So what ended up happening is the domain that I had written was so appropriate for that product. I thought, you know what, this actually is a really good fit. And so what I would do is, okay, if this test doesn't work out and I can't go forward with it, I would continue on um that store as a uh, as a as a home uh, office uh, niche store um because it was more coincidence that the product and the domain actually turned to work out pretty well but i see what you're saying to the to the to the point where it's so specific that you literally take the name of the product and you make that the domain name that's a that's a lot of revenue for godaddy or whomever you want to use for your for your domain registrar Okay, so this one is um, is a product research one. We're gonna get into some uh, specifics here. So, um, when I was watching your your video, uh, your video content, um, you mentioned checking trends on AdSpy, and wanting to take your advice and implement it. I immediately signed up for an account on it, and I, I don't know, maybe I did something wrong, but it immediately wanted me to pay for additional views, and I, I, had to, I had to put on the brakes for a second there. I'm not saying I would never pay for it. I understand a lot of this stuff. You have to invest and you have to reinvest. So I'm cool with that. I just what I wanted to ask you is if you can uh, divulge a little bit more about your um, your research methods that are maybe not so um, uh, cost prohibitive right away, especially for beginners like me. Yeah, so I, I can recommend you a couple free ones and there's a couple very cheap ones. So particularly there's this, social, it's called social media product research. Uh, I, I don't think it's talked about very much, but essentially there are many social media accounts that post dropshipping products every single day, multiple oh, yeah. times a day. Uh, a lot of them I are see plenty of them. Yeah, like a lot of them are in, on Instagram. A lot of them uh, are on on Reddit, um, particularly those two, and TikTok as well. So, for example, you could search up the hashtag "best selling products," or you could search up Shopify dropshipping products or winning products, uh, something of that uh, of that of that category. And you'll see a lot of these accounts posting a lot of different products. A lot of them will be very saturated. A lot of them will be just garbage products. But then every now and then you'll find a very, very good looking product there. 
Um, so that's a that's a very free method. You're just literally browsing social media. Um, and another very cheap method is DropPoint. It's like five dollars a month, I think. And they post many different products. They post very trendy ads on there. Um, so yeah, I definitely recommend those too. Okay, yeah, drop drop point. That sounds good. Yeah, I'm mean, five bucks a month for a starter is is all good. We've we've talked about this in the past with uh, with other guests too. Is the the starting budget? Um, so if I could just get your take on that really quick, I think a thousand dollars ideally is the budget that people want to. Ideally, yeah. yes. Uh, I'd say bare minimum of five hundred, but uh, ideally a thousand. So this one is from your your breakdown for uh, Facebook ad testing. To elaborate on how rapid this process is, you talk about a three-day window to determine if something is a winner. So can you go over the criteria for what happens on day one, day two, and day three? Yeah. Um, so just to clarify, it's not always going to be a three-day window. Sometimes it takes five days. Sometimes it could just take one day. Um, but the, the thing is, with my particular strategy, I actually recommend, you know, if any listener is uh, interested in learning more, it's, it's on YouTube. My name is uh, Paulie, the channel Paulie. Facebook ads. Um, but essentially day one looks like essentially you're doing your, you're setting up a $50 CBO campaign. And with that amount of money spent, you can see the metrics such as cost per unique link click. And if that cost per unique link click is above $2 and 50 cents uh, for any of the ad sets, then that is enough for me to kill that ad set because winning products almost always look like winning products. And if it was a winning product, it definitely would get a lot more clicks. It definitely would have had a lot more, a lot cheaper uh, cost per click. Um, so that's that's an indication that this is most likely not a winning product. Therefore, we should save our losses and essentially just move on to the next product. However, if all the costs per unique link clicks are at a normal or cheap price, then the next criteria is purchase intent. So does this is this product getting purchase intent, which means add to carts or checkouts initiated uh, within ten to fifteen dollars spent? then we should move on to the day three. But if we spent 10 to $15 or more per ad set and they don't have any purchase intent, then that signifies to me, this is most likely not a winning product. If it was a winning product, it definitely would have had some purchase intent. Um, so therefore we can save our losses and kill it on day two. But if that's not the case, we run it to day three. Now on day three, you'll have spent approximately $150 by then, 100 to 150. And you should be able to see some purchases from these ad sets because they're going to have spent 15 to $20 each. And if that's not the case, then it's most likely not a winning product. Let's save our losses. Let's move to the next product. Um, so that's the whole uh, thinking behind why it, it, it could take three days. Sometimes you do get purchases, so then you'll have to run it to the fourth day, fifth day, et cetera. Um, but yeah, it's a pretty good indicator of whether this product is going to look very profitable in the long run. If it doesn't look so profitable, and this short three-day window, then it's most likely not a winning product. Let's save our losses. Let's move to the next product. That's how I think about it. And 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 I think it, it speaks to your your proclivity for efficiency too. The the ability because you're saying if you're testing a lot of these products in batch, right? You're researching for three or five hours, or at this at this point, you you've got VAs doing it. It's a lot of products to test, and so it's important to you don't want to, you don't want to test these things over the course of weeks. Um, a for time reasons and then B for budget reasons. So it all seems to, it, it, it definitely fits together into your, your MO. Next thing I want to get your insight on is uh, interests. So one of the things I noticed is that you talked about how sometimes you can actually limit the amount of interests where you might even only need to go with uh, one or maybe two. So can you uh, divulge a little bit more onto how you fit interest into your overall workflow? Uh, do you mean Facebook ad interests into my Facebook strategy? Yes. Yeah, so when I think about interests and when I think about a product, the way I think about it is that 
first, you just want to approach it with common sense. So that's just the first thing. So if, it, if you're selling a dog leash, you just want to type in dog uh, and then maybe choose dogs, maybe choose pets, maybe choose German Shepherd, etc. So that's one that's a that's what I call a broad category, or is you know dogs is just very very broad, um, and then you get a little bit more specific. So for example, maybe pet stores, maybe a pet dog brand, or not a pet dog brand, but a pet food brand, uh, maybe a particular um, like a dog. I can't think of anything right now. A dog um, adoption center or something like mm-hmm. that. So those are different examples of things that are related to dogs, but not dogs specifically. So that's how I like to think about interest. I like to diversify the different categories. So with dogs, that's quite a easy example. Let's just say if I was selling a pair of headphones, um, the common sense approach would just be target people who like headphones. The more specific ways you could target would be brands of headphones, but not only that, you could even be more broad. You could be college students. Now, college students is not directly related to headphones, but you can imagine that college students per- perhaps purchase headphones. Uh, and then you can even take it a step more broader and target something like Best Buy. You know, So that's my thought process. I like to diversify and I like to choose eight interests per product. Uh, again, you don't want to just go with the most common sense ones like headphones or Bose or, or Dr. Dre or something. Uh, you want to be a little bit more broad and think a little bit more outside the box. Uh, and Facebook definitely likes broad audiences, like in the millions, tens of millions. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's what I would say about interests. Yeah, it's it's an important point about thinking outside the box. As you're describing headphones to me, one uh, interest that I had thought of would be uh, transit and subway for people who definitely. you know on the bus mm-hmm. or they they need the headphones in order to block out everything else. Definitely. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say it's funny you mentioned that. Like uh, commuters was actually one of my best performing interests uh, when I did test uh, a pair of headphones. Uh, it was what winning product quite a while ago. Yeah, and and then the point that I was going to make is also I think the interest that you're looking into is also it's going to influence um somewhat your your branding right and and exactly how you want to advertise this and who you want to advertise this to i mean i suppose commuters will go to best buy but there is a very specific set of needs for people who are commuting you expect that they're going to be listening to uh, their content their music or their podcast or whatever for at least like an hour or two hours so versus i guess somebody who's using headphones at home they might be wearing those things for six to eight hours depending on what they're doing all right so let's uh, let's keep uh moving right along so this was another uh, this is another thing that I found interesting from your your mistakes video. And one of the things I, I try to avoid, by the way, is I just don't want to get people to just like repeat, you know, their their content that they already done. Our listeners are always encouraged to check out our, our guests content so that they can sink their teeth into it and take their time. Um, but this is something that I want to know. Uh, and I want you to tell talk to our audience about um, it's in reference to the 80 20 rule where, you know, 20 percent of someone's effort should yield 80 percent of the returns. And I think we've all heard this at different points. Um, but from your uh, point of view, can you let our audience know what's in the 20% and then what is the 80% that it yields? Or even if that's not the best way I've asked the question, I just want to know the significance of 80-20 to you and your work. Yeah, so those are both good questions. So Pareto uh, principle is just found everywhere. It's found in uh, income equality. It's, found, uh, it's just found in so many things. Um, but particularly about work, it's that 20% of the things that you do will typically yield you 80% of results. Now, it's not always 20, 80, sometimes it's 15, uh, et cetera. But um, particularly the most effective things that you can do in dropshipping is Facebook ads and product research. So that's the 20% that will yield you 80% of the desired results that you want. However, many beginners, especially, they just have analysis paralysis. They have so many different tasks and they're spending hours and hours on setting up the store 
on you know changing like on designing a, a picture for the uh, the background of your of your store of um you know doing all these little maintenance things like downloading little apps or configuring the, the details and stuff like all of that is the 20 percent of the stuff of the time that you should allocate 80 percent of your time you should allocate it into the most effective most important things such as product research and uh, facebook ads now a beginner might think or somebody listening might think okay well all these maintenance things like designing your store like all these things have to be done of course they have to be done um, but you want to focus on what the big picture is and try to invest most of your time into those big picture things, which is product research and which is Facebook ads. Right. So, I mean, I'm more than happy to put myself in this position, too, because this is where I am with my journey. And and, I, and I'll tell you where my perspective is on this um, coming from from the beginner side. I think that there is this lack of clarity as to how far the business is actually going to go or how far the store is actually going to go. So I might think, oh, you know, this, oh, this is good. This is, this is going to be my, my, my store for life. I'm, I'm going to have this forever. And so there's this, there's this need or this desire to make sure that the, the store looks as pristine as it can to the point where whatever product it was I was working on is, is way past its due date. Were you asking me? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, if, if, uh, does this sound like something that, you know, on, on, from the from your beginners, um, is this something that they've said too, or what other um, uh, yeah. issues have you noticed that beginners have, and which causes this in the first place? Yeah, yeah. So I definitely can relate to that. Uh, my first store, I just like you know, I, I just spent like weeks, like actually, like I think more than months uh, on the store, and and I didn't even sell anything. Um, my second store was the the successful one, but. Um, to get back to your point, it's I think it's just because of perfectionism, and it's also mm. due to dopamine as well. Because when you're designing a store, for uh-huh. example, you're seeing the results, uh, you're seeing the results almost immediately. You know, when you put all this time, like let's say, put five hours into the store, you are proud because after that five hours, you have a very amazing looking store. It's 100% exactly what you pictured. So you get that dopamine of feeling like you've moved the needle, and you did move the needle. But what happens if you sell test the product and you get no sales? you really didn't make much progress. So it's very deceptive. And that's why you should look at what are the key things that make me money. That is finding a winning product and that is testing that product on Facebook ads. So that, that's what I would say in response. Okay, great. Um, and I do have a question for you from the other side of that too, uh, because I think there is a legitimate concern where people don't want the store to also be a disaster on entry and then the the, the customer doesn't see enough to find a trustworthy and they don't, they wouldn't want to spend their money there. So what do you say are the essentials that a store has to have that's presentable to a customer and has no issues with conversion? I would say have that philosophy of everything. Uh, whenever you're doing like the 80% of tasks that don't lead to the 20% of the results that you want, just do the essential job. Just do the, make, make sure it's good, but don't strive to make it as perfect as possible. So when it comes to the store, it would be having a clean color palette of maybe three primary colors or not three primary colors, but one primary color and then two accent colors. Uh, for example, blue. You, you just cannot go wrong with the color blue. Um, and strive to make it as clean and as minimal and as distractionless as possible. So use a modern text, like or use a modern font, perhaps like Helvetica or Avenir. Um, have some very nice-looking uh, royalty-free pictures from a website called like uh, Unsplash. Um, and then just come up with some catchy phrases for your slogan. Maybe put a small little about me section on the homepage 
um, have your collections, have good collection images. And overall, you could I could design a store, particularly with Debutify. I actually do recommend Debutify. I'm not being paid to say that. I, I use <laughs> it for all my stores. Um, so yeah, I particularly recommend Debutify because they do a lot of job for you and it's just very clean. And I could design a 100% fully designed store probably in about two hours. So that should give you a good time window of, you know, this definitely does not take weeks. Um, and, and the job is just to, just to have a very clean, very good looking, attractive, uh, minimalistic store. And it'll definitely do the job. And it does go back to what you were saying before about how we can we can test different products, but we don't want to keep starting new stores each time. So uh, all of this work that you're saying, it does yield dividends when people can then test uh, multiple different products as they as they go forward one, one thing are you uh, are you an affiliate with us by any chance uh, i actually am an affiliate oh you are okay i just wanted to make sure because if you weren't i was gonna want to get you set up on that like lickety split so uh i'm gonna i'm gonna shift gears uh this is some other stuff that you've brought up that at least to my recollection hasn't been brought up by other people uh which is always something that i prioritize so you also talk about legitimizing a business. You, you mentioned it briefly in your 1K a day video. Um, so there's some things that, the, uh, that merchants and sellers should be doing to solidify and, yes, legitimize their business. Um, one of them is to register it, either as a sole proprietor or a corporation. Um, so can you take it from there and let us know um, what the audience should be doing? Yeah, so legitimization is specifically to prevent uh, Facebook ad bans or to help prevent and also Facebook or not Facebook, but PayPal holds. Uh, so that's the main purpose of wanting to do that early on. Um, so specifically what you can do for legitimization is having registering a business address. So you can do that something from a website like ipostal1.com. I think that's the website. Um, and registering for like a $15 a month, uh, a virtual business address from anywhere in the United States or even anywhere in the world. Um, and that's, that serves two purposes. It, you can put it on your footer, and it's actually required for Google Ads if you want to run Google Ads. Uh, it makes you look a lot more professional, and this business address will be used for all business purposes, such as you know your business info in Facebook, uh, when you're creating accounts, when you're creating a bank, business bank account, etc. So that's the first thing I'd recommend. And then the, um, the second purpose of that business address is to hide your personal address as well, because you don't want people seeing your actual personal address where you live. Um, so that's the first thing business address. The second thing would be to register for uh, a business, either through a sole proprietorship, which is free. You can just get an EIN, you can go to EIN, or you can search up EIN, IRS, uh, and then apply for the EIN. Um, or you can take a second step ahead and do an LLC. And um, I know I know you didn't particularly ask me this, but some people might be thinking, do I have to create an LLC for every single Shopify store I create? And the answer is no. If I wanted to create 10 different Shopify stores, maybe let's say five of them are niche, five of them are one product stores, et cetera, and they have, they're completely different from each other, they have no association with each other, is, the question is, do I have to have 10 LLCs to run those 10 stores? And the answer is no, you could just have one LLC that is pretty much an umbrella holding company that serves all those 10 different stores. Um, so yeah, that's just if anybody was wondering that. But yeah, that, those are the two steps I would take for legitimization. The third optional step is to get a business credit card. And this is honestly not necessarily for legitimization. It's really just for your benefits. Uh, I particularly recommend a 0% APR for 12-month business credit card. That way you can rack up expenses and not have to pay for a whole year. That's fantastic. That that was the next one that I had chambered. But I want to, I'm asking something about virtual address and you have to forgive me. This one's kind of tongue in cheek, but Google Maps are pretty powerful. So 
Have you ever encountered um, a virtual address where somebody would like look up the virtual address and then they would see that it's like, I don't know, one of those power stations or it, it looks like it's a it's a crater in the ground? Like, I'm, I'm assuming that these businesses, they they understand this. And so they know that their virtual addresses will look legitimate on uh, on Google on Google Maps. I would say I have had that instance a little bit, but I would tell you that every person that has actually done that research is usually an angry customer. So they would yeah. have, you know, they would have um, given you a hard time anyway, to be honest. Um, so I don't think it's very, it, it, it honestly doesn't matter if it's an angry customer. And most likely it is an angry customer that's going to be acknowledging that. Then uh, do whatever it takes to, you know, please them, refund them as necessary. But I would say just carry forward, move on. Um, it, it really doesn't matter. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I I, 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 I know what you mean too. Some customers, they just, it's got to the, it's, it's past the point where they want to, they want the refund. They just want to go on a crusade and they just want to see exactly. if they can like unearth something and, you know, and, and deliver justice to uh, make up for whatever it is that they're not doing with their own lives. So yeah, that's, that's a fair point. I want to ask you about your uh, relationship with Oberlo, but before I do, uh, I want to break for a moment with a background question for you. I know that you got into e-commerce uh, selling a beard growth formula. By the way, speaking as somebody who's had a beard since elementary school, the grass is always greener on the other side. So from, from my perspective, there's a lot of times where I wish I didn't have to deal with this thing every day. Uh, I hear that a lot. Yeah. So uh, prior to getting into that, uh, I'd like to know what path you were on and what skills came with you when you got into e-commerce. Uh, so what path I was on when I started e-commerce? Before before then, like what you had gone to school for, what you th- maybe thought you were going to do before uh, e-commerce uh, unfolded before you? Gotcha, gotcha. So um, yeah, I was just a teenager in high school. I was just essentially perpetually bored. You know, I was just, mm-hmm. I was just very bored. I, I always strived to have purpose. I always was very conscientious. Um, and I was a server. I was making like $4 an hour, uh, literally like $500 a month or something like that. And I would just be like every single part-time job I had, I would always be listening to audiobooks or listening to YouTube podcasts, like things like this. And and then I, I would keep searching like how to make money online, things like that. And I explore all the different business opportunities. And I kept hearing about dropshipping. And I just, I heard all these little kids, like these teenagers making millions, driving Lambos and stuff. And, and that really what is what kind of sold me, I guess. Um, and I took it a bit more seriously. I was like, if these guys can make this much money and if these guys are killing it, then there's absolutely no reason why I can't do it. Uh, that's when I took entrepreneurship a lot more serious. That's when I took, you know, I acknowledge that I, I truly have the power and the capacity to do anything that I want. Um, you know, I had, I had just, a, I was just very bought into that confidence, uh, bought in with that confidence. And that's what allowed me to just pursue anything and everything that I dreamed of. Um, before I did dropshipping, I wanted to build an app. I did that for about three months, didn't work out. And and then I pursued the beard growth cosmetic. And I actually, that was a failed project, actually. I worked on it for about like three, five months or something. And I essentially just quit doing that because it was like FDA uh, legalities and stuff like that. So then I made a pivot to, to instead do instead do beard care instead of beard growth. Right. Because uh, I figured that was a very hot market. And I was like, this is a booming niche. It's, you know, everybody was rocking beards in 2017. And, um, and people still do, of course. Yeah. I think that's when I had my headshot taken and that, yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, that's, that's pretty much how I started when I was, um, that's pretty much what it looked like before. Yeah. I mean, the reason why I, I was like asking this question too, just because, um, sometimes you find that people are like, they're, they're in school for something far, far different. Like they're going to get into, um, uh, I, I don't know, geology or something along those lines. And then, uh, e-commerce it's it, the, 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 E-commerce is interesting. It calls people into it. Like it, 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 it compels people to, to join it. Yeah. 
I'll actually um, add to that about sure. the college thing. So I did go to college, and the only reason I went is because you know this is the status quo. You know, I I'm not going to think twice about it. Like, of course, everybody goes to college. Why wouldn't I go to college? Whatever. And I was very conscious of every dollar I spent towards college. I was very conscious of those classes I was taking, and very conscious of who was teaching me. Like, did I sign up for this specific professor to teach me? Do I know this specific professor's credentials? Why are they teaching me? What are they teaching me? Essentially, um, but but yeah, I went to college for about two years. And then I took entrepreneurship a lot more seriously, and I had this. I took a break from college for a while. I was like, okay, I'm going to start a business. I might as well take some marketing classes in college. So then I signed up for this marketing one-on-one class, and the first day I took that class, I dropped out. It was like the longest, most dreadful three-hour lecture I've ever heard, and she was essentially talking about nothing. You know, I had learned more on YouTube in the past couple of weeks than I did from this three-hour class of marketing and i looked at the syllabus not one mention of social media not one mention of advertising it was just all very conceptual very business kind of textbook information and i was like i'm spending thousands and thousands like tens of thousands of dollars to take this marketing class from this professor who has probably never had a successful business whereas i could just spend you know 500 to a couple thousand dollars to like a youtuber who has a course and actually proven results so it just didn't make any sense to me. And it was so logical for me to just drop out. It just made such good sense. But the whole stigmatization of that, the whole society, societal pressures uh, made it very difficult. And, um, and yeah, it was, it, was a, it was actually a relatively easy choice, but I did face a lot of hardship. And I would say that, you know, anybody going to college, just really question, are you going because society? Or are you going because of friends and family? Or are you going because yeah. you actually want to go to college because of that degree because it will be extremely significant extremely important you know if you're being a doctor or lawyer of course you need to get that degree but otherwise you you might not need it especially if you're an entrepreneur you probably don't need it i would save that money and you know try your own thing and then if it doesn't work out you could always go to college when you're 25 you know you can start a business when you're 21 if it doesn't work out go back to college when you're 25 go back to college when you're Mm -hmm. 28 it's not the end of the world so um that, that's my answer. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's trade schools too, right? I think one of the main misconceptions that I see from the college and even the, the university is that unless people are going into an industry where they know they're in demand, like engineering or, or doctoring, is that they go expecting to find a job and to find work and to make and make good money. And at least in my point of view, I've always viewed university more as a place of just betterment where somebody just goes to learn and understand something. But it's gotten to the point where college is like now the prerequisite to get into university and university is a prerequisite for a job. And so, yeah, I, I did two years of, uh, uh, of a, a very specific program about teaching people how to get into the comedy industry, to like run shows and write sketches and stuff like that. It was the only thing that was going to get me into college. Because it was the only thing I was. Really I didn't even know that was. I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah, it's it, it, it's it's under like I wouldn't say it's underground, but it's it only has so like people are only so aware of it. Um, we get people from like the states who find out about it, but beyond that, it's uh, uh, it's it's rather underground. There actually is something else I wanted to touch on too. I know we've um, we've sunk our teeth into this uh, perhaps longer than I had initially planned, but one thing I, I think you might find interesting from my point of view is that when I was in high school. There's the main courses. We got to English. We got mathematics. I went to a Catholic school, so there was religion. And religion, of course, was mandatory all four years because, of course, why wouldn't it be? And there, and the thing is in high school is that all of the subjects they teach have to be treated with some level of reverence or at least some level of um, respect because these are all things that will unfold in a lot of different ways once people exit high school. 
And marketing was one of the classes. They, they taught it in the 11th grade and then they taught it in the 12th grade. And to your point about the teacher who knew nothing about it, but was trying to teach it, our teacher knew nothing and didn't even try to teach it. Like they, they just gave us the, 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 the assignments and there was no, there was no lecture, nothing. So I ended up going on to that and I was just working on my animations to, to do for a different class. So I didn't even do any of the assignments. I don't even, I, I don't, half the time we were playing worms. Like I didn't even understand how we managed to pass this class. And, and I think that's really unfair because marketing is, I mean, it's key, right? It's, it's, it's communications. It's how people learn how to find ways to better themselves. You market, everything gets marketed, right? You market shows, you market products, you market cars. It's all about communicating to customers saying, this is what you need. So I don't know, man, there's a, there's a lot that needs to be uh, done to at least teach people that at an early age, how important marketing actually is at the very least have a teacher that tries to teach it for goodness sake. I, I'd agree. It's, you know, the way I like to think about it is if they're teaching it, if somebody's a professor at, at a college, they're, they're doing that full time. So they don't have time to manage their own companies. Um, and and yeah, that's just that's just. Um, I think they're just teaching just to, uh, just because it's their job, essentially. Yeah, and I'll make one more point. I we just kind of like I said, we got into this a little bit, maybe too much, but there's that old uh, saying like those who can't do teach, and like I, I think there are cases where somebody is really intuitive at understanding it and can teach it well, and maybe they can't quite do it. But uh, yeah, I I would say. Uh, the the best teachers tend to be the people who are actually you know involved in it themselves, which is why you uh, uh, went and started learning with other people in the e-commerce space. And well, here you are now doing doing quite well. I from uh, from from what I hear, uh, I'd, I'd say that you could definitely. I, I'd say that's a it's a little unfair to those who teach. I think to say that um, those who teach can't do or, or something like that, um, because a lot of people get fulfillment from teaching. A lot of people learn more by teaching. Um, and of course, it is also an income stream. So you can't just uh, like foolishly say, oh, I'm just doing this to help out other people without even acknowledging the income. Um, so I think there's a lot of factors for why people teach. And um, I don't know, I think a lot of gurus, especially they have like a bad stereotype, very bad connotation. Um, I think a lot of it is a little unfair. Well, you know, it's uh, the industry is only continuing to to evolve. And I think a, a lot of what was maybe underground first is now being brought to light because of how much more. Uh, people are getting involved in it and also the importance of it too. e-commerce is uh i think it's, it's it's practically saved lives and especially in the last six to eight months pe people having the ability to actually receive what they need and uh, and you know they can't get to stores or whatever so there it's it's an evolving industry and and from my perspective i've only really been active in the last uh half a year so far but you know i'm seeing a lot of positive improvements so with that said, let's uh, let's move on to. I want to ask you about your relationship with Oberlo because Oberlo hasn't. We haven't had a chance to bring this up yet and on the show altogether. Um, so so far, you're the most acquainted with the service, short of having somebody from the company themselves on the show. But you know, we'll get to that point. One thing I, I'd like to know about. Uh, well, I'll start with a practical question first, uh, just to make sure that we we get something tangible for for people, um, you know, including myself in this case. Um, right now, here I'll tell you what I'm doing is I have uh, DSers. And I will find the product on AliExpress, um, import it into DSers, and DSers pushes it to Shopify. Now, I what I want to know is, is this a case where Oberlo can do this better? Or is it a case where Oberlo and DSers have strengths and weaknesses? Um, 
And also, would one basically replace the other? Like, would Oberlo be an upgrade? So, along those lines, I'd like to hear what uh, would you think of the pro- of the product of, of uh, sorry, what you think of Oberlo in this case? Um, I'm going to be honest; they both did the same job. Okay, fair. Uh, it's just a personal preference of of you know which one you like more. Um, so, yeah, obviously, say that. Okay, and then um, would you mind uh, just tell me a little bit? Is there anything in terms of the? I guess for some people, they might find the process a little bit more intuitive on one or the other. So, is there anything unique that Oberlo does that the other services don't do? Uh, again, it's just a personal preference. Uh, I think Oberlo's UI is a lot better, um, and it, it is ultimately what I started with. Like I, I used the answers much later than I used uh, Oberlo. Sure. Um, but again, it, it, they both pretty much do the same job. Um, yeah, so I'm just going to be honest there. They, they really do the same job. Okay. Yeah, no, that's, that's a totally fair, um, uh, answer to the question. I, I will say I was expecting like one to emerge the winner from, from that question. That is what I thought was going to happen, but it's, uh, it's also a good answer in of itself to know that I can, uh, keep going with what I'm going, try the other one out. I'm not missing out. It's really, like you said, it's more uh preference. One of the things too, that I talk to people, um, a lot of the drop shippers that I've talked to. Typically, they will find ways to branch out. Either they form relationships or they have their own agencies. Um, you formed a relationship with Oberlo. So for people who may see themselves on that path where maybe they'll be able to work with a service like them or even work with them directly, can you tell me how you got involved with them in the first place? Yeah, so essentially when I had uh, grew my first beard store, I essentially was reached out to one of their uh, team members. And essentially, they had written an article about me. They interviewed me. They they wrote an article, and it did very very well. I had something like eight hundred thousand uh, hits or views. Um, and and essentially, I just kept cultivating that relationship. Every time they wanted like a short video uh, interview or something for another uh, for another content piece or something, I, I'd be hundred percent willing to do it. Sometimes I'd even reach out to them like, "Hey, is there anything I could help with? Is anything um, you know? I have another success story. Is this relevant? Do you guys want to?" talk about this whatever so i always kept that window open and i always realized how valuable that relationship could be so i over the practice of years like ever since 2000 i think it was like 2018 maybe um i just kept that relationship open and and just very communicating myself that i am available to help and provide value for you guys and then i would think it was like last year uh they had essentially reached out to me and saying that they were going to film a course and they essentially wanted to invite me to Berlin, Germany. And, and then, yeah, I just took that amazing opportunity, got to meet a lot of good people, got to meet the Oberlo team, uh, that Shopify headquarters. And, and, uh, yeah, so it was just the, the way I cultivated that relationship was first they reached out to me, which I was quite fortunate for that to happen. And not only that, I did as much as I could to make sure that I could nurture this relationship as well. Yeah. So I got one more question on on Oberlo, and I understand if maybe this is one that I'll have to wait till I talk to somebody in the industry. But this is the first chance that I've had to ask it, so I'm just going to go for it. Is there any priority or goal to uh, within uh, Oberlo to help legitimize dropshipping if it even needs that, uh, just to help like mitigate the stigma and to bring it more to the forefront to make it more of a mainstream fulfillment method for people in the industry? Uh, I don't know the exact measures they're taking, but I do know that they're very professional, very ethical, uh, very good business practices. They promote good business practices. Um, so they do that via their YouTube channel. They do that via their courses. And and they even like blacklist, like for example, Oberlo blacklists several products that might be copyrighted, so you can't even import them at your store anyway. So they do little things like that to make sure that dropshipping always continues to have a good uh, good reputation 
And, and like I said, they have plenty of good tips, very good articles, very good lessons um, to try and keep dropshipping as safe and as uh, legitimate as possible. Yeah. And and, that, and that's important too, right? I mean, one of the main things that really helped me um, feel more comfortable uh, joining into the industry is finding that, you know, uh, Debutify was working for uh, was making a template for Shopify. N- me not really knowing anything about it, I think seeing that it was uh, uh, working with Shopify, that helped uh, give me a sense of uh, of safety and security with it. And so the same thing too with uh, with Oberlo, especially when you said that Oberlo blacklist products, because I would we would hate to find out that we were about to push something or even started pushing something and selling something that was um, like uh, unethical or illegal or for whatever reason we weren't uh, allowed to sell it. So it's, it's stuff like that that I find comforting. It helps the industry overall. So yeah, it's it's good to hear. And like I said, it's down the line when we get to talk to somebody with Oberlo, we'll, we'll follow up with them on that. One thing that you mentioned early on from your uh, your interview in Tech Money Talks is um, you didn't you didn't have like a direct mentor. Um, it was more like I think you just you sign up for some different programs and you learn from a couple of different people. Um, so first of all, did I get that right? And then what was the situation at that time? Was it a choice to not have a direct mentor, or was it a matter of circumstance? Uh, so I started in 2016, so there was really not too much uh, e-commerce education as there is right now. Um, so I I didn't have any direct mentor because I didn't know how to find a mentor. Um, I I think I, I didn't really have a lot of money. You know, since I was just doing it all by myself, reinvesting the money back into the business. Um, so for that, for that simple reason, I didn't have a mentor. Uh, I definitely would recommend getting a mentor, especially if you can afford one, especially, especially if you want to like shortcut the process. Um, but yeah, does that answer your question, or what was the second? Oh well, I mean, yeah, because you well, the question was like, was it choice or matter of circumstance? And yeah, it was mainly a circumstance because you only had so many resources to invest into it. It was more about just uh, trying to make your own way. So yeah, yeah, it, it fairly answered the question. Um, so we're, uh, we're we're pretty close to the end, and I've only got three more questions to hit you with. And these ones are um, well, well, one is like mindset. Uh, this one I'm asking for fun because I've I've been in my apartment like 90% of my time this last eight months. And I just need a chance to live vicariously through somebody else for a few minutes. But you participated in uh, 10X Growth Con, which I never uh, hadn't heard of prior to. Um, and you had some incredible insights value. You've even valued as like $3,000, which uh, on your, on the Instagram. So first of all, and you said that if you want people, to, if you want to share these, people have to send you a coffee. So if I owe you a coffee, it's fine, but what insights are still vivid in your mind that stick with you even to this day? So I remember particularly, there were a lot of good speakers, but I particularly recommend what Sarah Blakely told me. Uh, she's the founder of Spanx, by the way. That's like a leggings company. Um, they but she they essentially do good said that, yeah, they do, they do a lot of good work. Um, but she said to, the definition of failure is not necessarily about the result. It's about not doing anything at all. So failure the definition of failure is just not doing anything. Failure is not, you know, defined by, oh, I created a Shopify store, I wasn't able to sell anything, and, and therefore I quit. It's just not even doing it at all. It's not even trying. It's not even seeing what could have happened. You know, so what she embraced, she really wanted to embrace failure. Like, how can I fail as much as possible? So in other words, how can I try so many things as much as possible? And she had this weekly thing. It's just like, what's one failure I had this week? And if I haven't failed at anything, I'm not doing enough. So it just really flipped these, the whole script about failure and it really made it like a essential part of the process. 
And a lot of people have this very emotional reaction towards failure. And, and really, I think it's, they should be a lot more logical about it. And, and like the, the cost of failure is not as significant as people think. You know, if I, let's just say I start a business, doesn't work out. Um, you know, I, maybe I lose a couple thousand dollars, but in the long run, you know, maybe that couple thousand dollars would have led me to making hundreds of thousands of dollars. I would have never known that if I would not have tried. So I'd say that's a, a very good piece of information. I think everybody should know. Yeah, that's fantastic. I I, I will say that um, because you're saying that people have an emotional reaction to it. I think a lot of that too just has to come down to what conditioning um, people went through, especially early on. Because uh, in, in in school, there's you know there's no shortage of ridicule and there's no shortage of um, mitigating people, make, putting people down whenever they do fail. And sometimes it's the teachers, but it it is largely with our with our students and with our peers. And so there there is a lot that needs to be done to encourage mistake making. Um, but it's it's far be it from me to revitalize the educational system. But I do under I'm believe me, I'm I'm right there with them too. It, it happens to me too. So uh, I, I do understand where, where it comes from, but it's it, it's difficult to uh, to get past. And you know, best of luck to each and every one of us uh, on that on that challenge. I'll add one more thing as well. Like you, you really only have to succeed one time. You know, if you can fail let's say if you fail at 10 different businesses, you only need one successful business to recover all those losses and also live, you know, that lifestyle that you're pursuing or all those dreams that you want. You just need to win one time. You know what I mean? So the odds are quite actually in your favor, you know, because nobody cares about your losses as long as you're right one time. So, you know, the ratio, like I said, it's in your favor. Yeah, that's also really good too. And, you know, um, the the second uh, to last question that I had, I feel like we've, we've, we've almost... Um, basically answered it uh, by by proximity, but I'm just going to ask it anyways, just in case it yields a unique answer. Uh, one of the things that you talked about um, that you and many others need to overcome, and I'm sure I'm right in there too, are uh, limiting beliefs. That's why I realized, okay, maybe we kind of answered this already, but yeah, let's go for it. So um, can you remember any limiting beliefs that you had and how you were able to mitigate them to get to where you are? One particular limiting belief I had was that I am not special or that I am not capable of, you know, doing things that famous people do or doing things that really big people do because they're just, they're just different. They have, they have a sort of, they're built different. They have a different environment. Something is different between me and them. And essentially how I overcame that limiting belief was just, I tried to socialize myself and condition myself as much as possible by those who are successful, by those who are doing what I want to do. So I just stopped listening to advice from from friends, from family. I love them, but why am I taking advice from them when they're not in the position that I perhaps want to be in? Um, so I, I just, I was very specific with my information, with my information diet. I was seeking the best of the best. And that ultimately socialized me and conditioned me into getting rid of all these limiting beliefs and realizing that everybody is is on the same playing field. You know, some people have advantages, some people, have, you know, of course there are different uh, advantages, disadvantages, but largely it's it's about your self uh control and it's about your will it's 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 largely based on yourself and you have the majority of the control and um and just really believing that and really solidifying that is is what allowed me to do you know what i've done and and just ultimately allow me to keep doing what i want to do for example right now i'm pursuing a fashion brand i've you know the chances of me succeeding are, are not not high at all i've I'm starting from scratch. I have no acknowledge, no prior knowledge, no design history. I have nothing except for my interest in, in style. And but the thing is, I, I know I could, I know I have a good chance. Not, maybe I don't have a good chance, but 
why not? Why not try it? Um, and, and I have that confidence um, because I've, I've, I've got rid of that limiting belief. Well, I'd like to uh, just do a, a quick a quid pro quo and uh, throw one of mine to the audience as well. Um, one limiting belief that uh, I've been dealing with is the idea that if I'm wrong once, then I'm always going to be wrong. And I think a lot of people have this issue too, and it's why people have difficulty um, admitting to maybe they've taken the wrong position on something because it's it's she can shatter their confidence. Well, whole, if I came to this conclusion uh, through my judgment, and if my judgment was wrong, then I'm that I must be wrong in all these other places too. And what I've come to realize is that I'm wrong plenty of the time, but I'm also right uh, a lot of the time too. And it's a, and it's given me the ability to at least like make decisions. Uh, this is, all the decisions going to be good? No, in fact, many of them will be bad. But it's it's a heck of a lot better, and there's a lot better yield to making decisions at all than just this feeling. And and it's also like it's a, it's an act of selfishness too. It's this desire to not want to participate in society. Like, well, I have nothing to contribute. I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to sit all on my ass all day and watch Netflix. Well, no, you have to, in order to be good, you do have to like take on a lot of that burden. And so and that's just one thing I wanted to throw in there because I, I didn't want you to I say one without trading one as well. Definitely. I, I would agree. I would agree hundred percent. Well, Paul, this has been uh, an, an hour with you and I'm very grateful for your time. I, I know we don't have the cameras on for this talk, but I, have taken uh, quite a, quite a few notes that uh, I'll be uh, reviewing afterwards. So the final question before we get you on out of here is a, if you have any words of wisdom, maybe an answer to a question I didn't ask, uh, this is a chance to share it. And then B how people can reach out to you so that they can uh, get to know you better, engage and see more of what you have to say. Um, I'm going to say a very almost kind of dark one. Um, oh, go for it. I like dark stuff. Yeah. So the quote goes like this. A man without purpose is a man waiting to die. And this applies, of course, men and women, of course, but it's it's because we only have this one shot at life. And, you know, if if you don't have a purpose, you're just blindly following other people's agendas. You're just waking up, just doing whatever you want. And, and you realize that, you know, it's a very empty way to live. And it's very depressing, especially for me. Uh, you know, m- more people may be more nihilistic. Maybe this might not apply to everybody. But if you're the conscientious type, if you're the entrepreneur, then you know that work is not just about making money. It's not just about achieving goals. It's it's about climbing. It's about going on an uphill journey and enjoying it and not just thinking about the destination, but doing it because what else would you be doing? You know, what is the opposite? The opposite is just doing nothing or potentially just wasting time working for somebody else, doing something that ultimately does not uh, serve you. So it's just about finding doing whatever you can to find your purpose and then just going all in on it. And to live in any other way would be to, for me, it's just very depressing. I get very dark. I get very anxious. If I'm not on my purpose, I I don't know what I'm doing. Um, So whenever I find myself depressed or anxious or something, it's always because I'm lacking purpose. And whenever I find that purpose, I am hundred percent like just my best version of myself. So um, if that relates to you, then, you know, I'd say find your purpose as, as soon as possible. If that maybe doesn't relate to you, then, you know, um, I don't know what to say, but, but yeah, I, I, that, I think that's what I'd say. Yeah. Fair enough. It's made me wonder if I should do like, um, like an economics, uh, after dark, uh, version of this show at some point and bring it back on and sink your teeth into some of the darker stuff. Cause I, I'm, I, I've, I've stared into the abyss a couple of times. It's, uh, yep. yeah, stares back into you. Exactly. All right. And then the other half of it is uh, how people can uh, uh, can 
engage in your content and engage with you. Yeah, so uh, my name is Paul Lee, again, so you can just search that on YouTube, on TikTok, on Instagram, uh, P-A-U-L-L-E-E. And if you guys are interested in, any, anybody's interested in one-on-one, or not one-on-one, but uh, one-on-one and group mentorship, then that is econx.org. You can contact me there, and it's essentially an eight-week mentorship program. Uh, if any of you guys are interested, go ahead and apply. Maybe you're a good fit. Maybe we're a good fit together. Um, but yeah, hope to hear from some of you guys. And uh, yeah, stay tuned. All right, everybody. Uh, go find your purpose, and we will check in soon. Thanks again, Paul. Thanks for listening. You might have found this show on many number of platforms. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or right here on Debutify. Whatever the case, if you enjoy this content and want to help us thrive, please take a few moments to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think is best. We also want to hear from you. So whether you think you'd be a good guest or want to weigh in on anything related to our show, you can email podcast at Debutify.com. Or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Finally, this podcast is created by the passionate team at Debutify. If you're ready to take the plunge into e-commerce or are looking to up your game, head over to Debutify.com and see how it can change your life and the lives of many through what you do next. <laughs>